Welcome to the Faith Community Church Podcast, a ministry of Faith Community Church in South Boston, Virginia. We're glad you can join us as interim pastor Kyle Julius shares a weekly message to encourage you to deepen your faith in Jesus Christ. Here's Pastor Kyle. Well, if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Jonah, uh, where we're going to be in chapter 4, finishing up our study this morning. Uh, As a heads up, Went, uh, next Sunday we're going to begin the Gospel of John, a uh, little bit longer than Jonah, so, uh, you know, I uh, just wanted to give you a heads up, that's where we're going to be uh, getting comfortable in for a little bit, and where we're heading next after we finish up this last chapter. Uh, so if you have your Bible, it's Jonah chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verse 1 all the way to verse 11. But it displeased... Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over a Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and what we are not make us. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, we're all familiar with the beloved hymn, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved, how precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed? While we're all familiar with that hymn, we might be less familiar with the one who penned the hymn, John Newton. Uh, Maybe we know his name, but did you know that John Newton uh, was an active participant in the England slave trade prior to his conversion? In fact, that was his primary business, the selling, transportation, and trading of other human beings based on their ethnicity. Uh, That is where the grace of God found John Newton. He was on a slave trading ship 
And in 1787, Newton wrote uh, Thoughts Upon the African Slave Trade to help William Wilberforce's campaign to end the practice. Uh, Quote, John Newton writes, A business at which my heart now shudders. Recollection of that chapter in his life never left him. And in his old age, when it was suggested that the increasingly feeble Newton retire, he replied, I cannot stop. I'm going to take that from John Newton when I get too old to preach. He says, what? Shall the old African blasphemer stop while he can speak? The man who once sold human beings captive to other humans was now held captive to the grace of God in Christ and was never the same again. It was that man who wrote the most sung hymn in virtually all churches of all ethnicities and denominations. Imagine today someone who is an active participant. Let's just put this in our own context. Imagine someone today who is an active participant in human trafficking, coming to faith in Christ, and claiming total forgiveness and redemption by this same amazing grace. Uh, Or imagine an SS soldier from Nazi Germany who worked and participated in the awful, heinous acts in Auschwitz, repenting of their sins and claiming total forgiveness by the grace of God found in Christ. Uh, Imagine Dozar Sarniv, one of the perpetrators in the Boston Marathon bombing, rejoicing and receiving the grace of God through faith in Christ. Now, some of those names might bring feelings of unsettled feelings and difficulty to imagine that grace could change those hearts. Uh, that, That grace is amazing enough to clear their sins. And while we struggle and find it difficult to think or imagine those people could receive the grace of God, at the same time, we will sing joyfully of amazing grace. This morning, I want want us to consider a single question. Uh, the, The main point of this passage here doesn't come in the form of a proposition, but a question. And the question is, is God's grace too amazing for you? Is God's grace too amazing for you? Well, I want us to see this morning that there are two tell signs that God's grace has become too amazing for us. There are two signs in our lives where we could struggle with the grace of God being for somebody or ourselves, and yet at the same time still sing amazing grace. Two tell signs. The first sign is in verses 1 through 5. And it it is this. God's grace has become too amazing for us when we are angry at God's grace. When we are angry at God's grace. The scene begins uh, this morning with Jonah's displeasure at the outcome of the Great Awakening that we read about last week in chapter 3. And not only is Jonah said to be displeased, but the text says he's exceedingly displeased. We've seen this word exceedingly uh, show up a number of times in Jonah uh, to show the stark contrast between how God feels about something and how Jonah feels about something. And not only was he exceedingly displeased, the text says he was angry. Uh, Now, that seems to be an odd response from a preacher. From a preacher... Uh, Jonah got the response most preachers want and pray for and dream of, right? He had uh, thousands of people come to faith in Christ under his preaching ministry, and he barely preached a good sermon. 
to be the guy who is used to awaken sinners, that's the kind of stuff that makes the church history books in seminary. Uh, and then we come to find out, after his exceeding displeasure, which is an odd response on the part of a preacher, uh, we come to find out why it was. It's now in chapter 4 we come out to find why Jonah decided to avoid, avoid God's call in the first place. Uh, he says in verse 2, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. We didn't know this in chapter 1. We just assumed he was avoiding it for any number of reasons. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. What an odd thing to say of why you don't want to go to a group of people to preach the message that God has given you. Again, we see this odd tension between what Jonah knew to be true and how he lived it out. You remember the theological statement that Jonah made on the ship to the sailors. Uh, He made this confession of who God was, and yet he was living and acting as though God was not what he was saying. And so we see here in verse 2 that Jonah knew what he knew and how he um, lived was, was very different. He was a great theologian, but a poor disciple. He knew Scripture because that's what he's reciting here in his prayer, by the way. Uh, Jonah prays Exodus 34.6. God says to Moses, this is God saying this about himself, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So not only did Jonah know Scripture, which clearly he does, and not only does he know who God is, which he clearly does, but he had experienced this grace when it came to his own people. Uh, remember a while back when God set His goodness and grace upon Israel when they didn't deserve it? Uh, it was one of the first texts that I think Steve read for us before we looked into chapter 1 of our study. It was 2 Kings 14, 23-27. If you write in your Bible or on a piece of paper, keep this passage in mind when it comes to Jonah. Because here is a, a picture of how Jonah experienced the grace of God and how the people of God experienced the grace of God despite what they deserved. Uh, 2 Kings 14, 23-27. I'll just read it here for us. In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned forty-one years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. In other words, the king of Israel here is actively participating in idolatry. And the text continues, He restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath as far as the sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel, but the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. In other words, though Israel's king, Jeroboam, was wicked and did not walk in the way of the Lord, the Lord nonetheless used him to restore the borders of Israel and saved his people. Though his people were walking in active idolatry, forsaking God, God through the same prophet that is angry at the awakening that has happened in Nineveh, God had used 
to speak His word of grace over His people. While Jonah did not uh, know the people of Nineveh would respond to God's word the way that they had responded, he knew how God would deal with them if they embraced and believed and repented at the proclamation of it. I, I mentioned last week how Jonah didn't know how the people of Nineveh were going to respond. So his, his prayer here and confession of how God responded to them, he knew this was going to happen. Look, he didn't know that Nineveh was going to respond the way he did, but he, he did know if Nineveh responded in belief, then that God was gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He did know that about God. And it was this grace he knew. He knew this about God because not only did he read it about God, but he had experienced that with his own life and his own people. And it was this grace that caused him to run in the opposite direction. Uh, Jonah is filled with irony. I, he is a very, very complex individual. Because at one moment we see him rejoicing in this grace, and now we see him angry at this grace. And it was this grace that he was seeing poured out on people he did not think deserved it. It was this grace he was angry at. Uh, in this way, uh, Jonah has much in common with the angry brother of the prodigal son who came home when he was received by his father. Uh, in the prodigal son, we, we typically focus on the prodigal son and not the bitter, angry brother uh, who was mad that the son was even received in the first place. We tend to fit ourselves in the prodigal son story, and we, we sometimes refuse to see ourselves as the angry brother. Just as a refresher, Luke 15, 28-32 uh, describes the brother, but he was angry and refused to go in. So there's a feast and a celebration for the fact that the brother had come home and was now part of the family once more. And so the brother sits outside angry and bitter and resentful. And Luke continues to quote the brother, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me. And in all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So we see an angry, bitter prophet. Just as we read of an angry, bitter brother. So Jonah prays a bit dramatically. I mean, this is like classic, all my dreams have shattered and, and, and everything is going not my way. Look at his prayer in verses 3-4. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? It bothered Jonah so much that Nineveh received the grace of God that he wanted to die. You might think this is a little bit outlandish and a little bit much, but if you know people well enough, you know that responses can come like this in all shapes and sizes for whatever issue it is. And so we see Jonah just distraught over the fact that these people would know his God. And God replies with a simple question. In fact, it's only three words in Hebrew. Do you do well to be angry? And of course, Jonah doesn't respond at first. 
Jonah gives God the silent treatment as he did in chapter 1. Instead of responding to his call, Jonah just hops to a ship to Tarshish. And so we see the silent prophet continue to be silent, even in his dialogue with God. Uh, But God's question to Jonah then is still a question for us to consider today. Do we do well to be angry when God's grace is poured out on someone or some group of people that we don't think deserve it? We've all been there. That question resonates deeply. And even if Jonah is silent to the question, it demands us to answer that question it's as though Jonah was silent to it until later on, just so maybe as we read these words, we can ponder and think and ask and answer that question. Do you do well to be angry when the grace of God is poured out on someone or some people you don't think deserves it? Notice instead of Jonah's response to God's question, uh, is not an answer verbally. Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east in the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Sometimes our actions, friends, speak louder than our words do. Remember, disobedience to God doesn't always come in the forms of saying no. It just comes in the form of doing our own thing. So Jonah does his own thing here. But he is responding. He goes out to the city, sits, and waits to see if, I don't know, maybe if Nineveh would go back on their repentance. Uh, maybe they would mess up and God would change his mind. Uh, my, my wife often scolds me uh, in public because I, I like to people watch. I'm just, a, I, not in a creepy, weird way. I, I, I won't. I, I, I don't make it my aim of activity. I just, I just watch and observe people. Uh, and she'll catch me doing it, and she'll say, Kyle, stop staring at them. You're staring into their soul. <laughs> and I'm not. Or when we're driving, it's something else she really hates. When we're driving down the road and another car sometimes comes along, I'll, I'll look over at the other driver and wave. <laughs> or give it a stare of disappointment when they're driving dumb. Uh, she always gets so uncomfortable with that. Um, well, that, that's what Jonah's doing, essentially. He's people-watching. He's making it his business to observe these people who had just received the grace of God. Uh, but he's not people-watching because he's an extrovert or observant, uh, like me. Uh, but he's just watching and waiting for them to mess up and see if they really are repentant. And when that happens, Jonah has a front-row seat to their demise. Just like the angry, self-righteous brother of the prodigal son, he refused to go in and celebrate the repentant sinners who had now found refuge and forgiveness in the grace of God. Jonah has so many attributes of how we tend to be. Just sitting and waiting and watching for somebody to mess up, especially somebody, we know who they are. We know who they really are. They really cannot be changed by the grace of God. I know what they've done. I, I know what they've said. You don't know what that person is like behind closed doors. You don't know what that person has done to me. And so Jonah just sits there uh, with his popcorn and M&Ms and Dr. Pepper, diet Dr. Pepper, and he sits there and, and he just waits, 
waits for the moment where he can point the finger and say, God, I told you so. Friend, do you find yourself here this morning with with anger or resentment at the grace of God in someone else's life? Or maybe it bothers you at the thought that someone you know who has hurt you uh, or caused issues in your life or, or someone you've had a falling out with to imagine that they would receive the grace of God in their life. And so you've also refused and stopped being the vessel by which God can deliver his grace. Let me ask a question. Is God's grace limitless and unmerited except for when it comes to the person or that person? How often have we sung amazing grace and yet limited, and that grace has been too amazing dependent on the person? Whether it be a fellow church member or a co-worker or an ex-friend or a neighbor or your parents or whatever, if we find ourselves in the same posture of the angry prophet and the angry self-righteous brother in Luke when it comes to other people experiencing and knowing the grace of God in their life, then perhaps God's grace really is too amazing for you. Maybe it really is too amazing for us and we sing amazing grace in vain. If anger and self-righteousness and resentment and bitterness are the primary way we respond to the grace of God in other people's life, then do we really know grace There's another scene in in the Gospel of Luke that illustrates this point beautifully. Uh, Here we have uh, another interaction between uh, a a Pharisee or the religious resentful uh, and and those who are broken and in need of grace, right? So in in Luke, um, let's see, in Luke 7, 36 through 48, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. So we have the Pharisee asking Jesus to eat with him. And and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And and, and remember, you've got to remember, eating food in the Middle East, this is not sitting around at a table where they were distant from each other. They would have been very close with one another. So here's the Pharisee, the one who knows it all, the one who has it all together, asking Jesus to get close with him. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment standing behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. We have a broken, broken woman here. We have someone who really is in need of the grace of Jesus. And she's not ashamed to let all of that out in the lowest place. Now when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him. For she is a sinner. And Jesus answering, so he gets mad. He gets, he gets self-righteous and indignant. If you knew what type of person this was who was coming to you for need, Jesus, if you knew, what type, if you knew where she had been. I saw what she posted on Instagram and Facebook the other day. You don't know her, 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 what she's been, what she does, and where she frequents. Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owned 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. 
And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You have given me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. In other words, Jesus is saying, the more sin, the more grace. The more sin, the more grace. And that's what the Pharisee and the brother and Jonah doesn't understand. Is that grace is amazing because our sin is amazing. And I don't mean amazing in the sense of that it's awesome or cool or, you know, to, it's just, it is out, it is, I don't even know if there's a numerical word to describe the depth of our sin. So Jesus is saying, hey, her sins are many and they're forgiven for she loved much. In other words, the more sin, the more grace. Notice the Pharisee pointed out that if this man were a prophet, he would have known what kind of woman this is and would have repelled her from reaching out, right? You know, because up until this point, all the Pharisee knew were prophets who had sat outside the city and put their nose up at people who were in depth of sin. They only knew what they were reading. They only knew Jonah, but this prophet, Jesus, if that prophet were Jonah, Jonah would have done what that Pharisee would have anticipated the prophet to do. But this prophet, Jesus, did no such thing. Jesus, the prophet who did not know, who did know what kind of woman this was. Who does know what kind of people he had coming to him. Right? Who do, who, Jesus, who knows what kind of person you are. What kind of person I am. And I'm not talking about the person that we present ourselves to be on Sunday morning or on social media or even the ideal version that we have in our mind of what we should be. Jesus who knows all of, all of us and does not repel or shy away from any of it. Who let the woman and sinners touch him and reached out to them so that they could be healed and made whole. The whole, the prophet who celebrated the lost coming home. Jesus, the prophet who instead of sitting outside the city waiting for condemnation, wept over the city of Jerusalem at the unrepentant sin. Friends, do we weep? Do we weep or do we wait? for something to go wrong in other people's lives so we can point fingers? Do we seek to see those without the grace of God come to know the grace of God? Do we forgive much because we have been forgiven much? Or do we sit in self-righteousness and anger waiting for people to get what they deserve? Maybe you don't do it in the community, but maybe you do it when you turn on the TV, right? When you watch uh, the politicians or everybody in the Supreme Court who are, are just the scum of the government or whatever, and we just, our natural disposition towards them is, is to withhold the grace of God because they don't deserve it. Friends, if that is our natural disposition, if we are quick to be angry and resentful and bitter at the grace of God, then maybe we have not really received the grace of God. Or maybe we have just forgotten. Maybe we have forgotten how deep the grace of God runs in our lives because of how deep the sin runs. 
Jonah certainly forgot. Chapter 2. If Jonah could forget two chapters ago, how much more do we forget? And how much more do we need to be reminded? So grace, is the grace of God too amazing for you? It might be if you were angry at the grace of God. Especially directed at those in places and people that you might not think deserve it. And that's what we're seeing here in Jonah, this anger. Second telltale sign that God's grace has become too amazing for us uh, is that we are selfish with God's grace. Uh, If you look in the next scene in verses 6 through 11, we read, uh, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head, to save him uh, from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow? came into a being in the night and perished in the night. And should, I, should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Here God gives Jonah grace by sheltering him from the heat of the day. And Jonah responds by what? Rejoicing. Uh, talk about somebody with, with personality disorder, right? Jonah goes from uh, being exceedingly angry to exceedingly glad all in one moment. So he rejo- but he rejoices. Look, look what makes Jonah happy is that God's grace is being bestowed on him and sheltered over him and shading his life and protecting him. The text said he was exceedingly glad. Right, friends, how easy it is for us to rejoice and embrace the grace of God when it comes to our own sins and failures and yet respond negatively when someone else is being the recipient of it. Right, in one text, Jonah goes from the anger at the grace of God and then rejoicing at it. But this is a false, shallow rejoicing at the grace of God because it doesn't understand the depth and the measurelessness of it. Right? It only embraces and rejoices at the grace of God when it covers our sins and mistakes and failures. In other words, this isn't a true joy in the grace of God. This is a selfishness that is exposed in Jonah. Uh, grace is funny like that, friends. It, it, it not only saves and relieves, but it exposes deeply. Grace is an exposing agent here, and, and Jonah's selfishness is exposed. The condition of his heart is laid bare before God. It is almost as if grace has been this, the, the vehicle by which God has opened and laid bare the heart of Jonah. And notice the selfish condition is further exposed when God destroys the plant. God takes the very thing away that has brought Jonah joy in his life. The thing that provided Jonah with shade and comfort. Uh, Let's just read that real quick. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. And then we... We look down a little bit, and God's, God's question is, 
You, you pity the plant. You have compassion. You have care and concern for a plant. But not people. You care about something that you did not labor for. You did not make it grow. God is saying, Jonah, you care so deeply for this plant, but you don't care about these people. Friends, Jonah cared more about something that brought him gain than image bearers coming to know the true living God. Jonah cared more about his own comfort than he did the state of the souls he was told to go preach to. Jonah was selfish with the grace of God. He enjoyed the fruit of it in his own life, but he rejected it when it could possibly bring fruit into other people's lives, especially people's lives, especially his enemies. Remember, Nineveh, or Assyria, has yet to take over his country. It's coming. God's already prophesied about it through his other prophets. It's, it's on its way. So that makes it all the worse. And yet here we see in plain daylight the teaching of Jesus to love our enemies. To not just love the people that embrace us, who, who we enjoy the fruit of their friendship and their love and their goodness in our lives, but to also embrace and to extend that into people who we are going to get nothing out of. He was selfish. He loved it when it was good for him, and then when it wasn't good for him, Jonah was back to square one. He was angry. If we rejoice in the, the fruit of grace in our own lives and are stingy with it in the lives of others around us, then maybe grace really is too amazing. Maybe when we sing that, we sing it in vain. But friends, grace can never be too amazing for the person who knows how undeserving they are who knows nobody is deserving of the grace of God. That the grace of God truly is amazing without measure or limitation to the one who has found Jesus. You might be here asking the question, how can grace be that amazing? How can it reach even the worst of sinners? Right? Like someone, like, someone like, how can John Newton, who sold people, receive the grace of God? Right? How, can, how can the one who participated in the, in the Boston Marathon bombings, right, uh, if he put his faith in Jesus, how could he be cleared of that guilt? How could somebody like me coming in here, knowing all that I have done, knowing all that where I have been, how can God pardon and forgive and give me measureless grace? How can I this morning, be the recipient of the grace of God and be clear to my sin. Look, friends, we better know how to answer that question, especially in our culture. Our culture is bent on canceling one another for the past sins and failures with no way of atoning for it at all. I mean, just look around us. Someone finds one wrong thing about someone else's past or someone else's present, then you're done for. So as the church of God, we better be the place where grace is abounding. Because we understand, we understand that the reason why measureless grace can be ours 
is because justice was executed on the one who didn't deserve it. Justice was met at the cross of Christ. The answer to that question is found in the cross of Christ. How can I be cleared of my guilt? Turn your eyes to that hillside where justice and mercy embrace. There the Son of God gave his life for us and our measureless debt was erased. You see, God didn't ignore justice for the deep wrongs and sins people commit. He just put it on his Son. From the smallest sin to the greatest, no matter who you are, what you have done, God will accept all those who turn from their sin and accept His Son as Lord and Savior. That is the Gospel. That's the beautiful message of the Gospel. It does not matter who you are. It does not matter which sin you have dwelt in or has caught you or captivated you. It does not matter. Think of the worst individual in the world, whether infamous or not so famous, maybe in your own life. That person, too, can be the recipient of the grace of God because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we get to a point where we start deciding who gets grace and who doesn't get grace and who is opted out of the grace of God by whatever they have been doing or saying, then we have failed to understand the gospel message. So, I leave us with this question. And only you can answer this, really. Is the grace of God too amazing? Let it not be so today. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that your word corrects us and challenges us and and reminds us that none of us, not a single person, is, is, is deserving of the grace that is poured out in Jesus. Not a single one. We read from cover to cover the mess of people's lives. And yet through that mess, we see the grace of God abounding. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that has missed the grace of God because they've withheld the grace of God in someone else's life, that you would open up their heart and soften it and remind them of the depth of their mess, their own sin, and just how far the grace reaches that. So that they might also uh, be... Uh, the vessel by which you uh, bestow grace on other people through the gospel of Jesus. May we be a people of grace. Uh, May we enjoy and pour out the grace that is lavished on us that Paul writes in Ephesians 1. Uh, May we be known for grace and may we live and be sanctified by it. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about Faith Community Church, you can find us online at FCCSobo.org or on our Facebook page by searching Faith Community Church. As always, God loves you, we love you, and we hope you have a wonderful week.